Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guests, who will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, will be something we've never done before. Actually, four people at once, all of them Catholic women physicians who will share some of their stories, reflections, and advice about being a woman physician in 2019. But first, kind of to set the stage for this panel discussion, let's look at some recent medical news about women in medicine. Uh, and we found an interesting study that was uh, published in February of 2017. And in this study, they compared the mortality rate or death rate and readmission rates for Medicare patients treated by male physicians versus female physicians. You'd think that there shouldn't be a difference. There, there shouldn't be, should there? there you, you would think there Men and shouldn't. women aren't different, are they? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it was an interesting study, and I'm glad they took a look at it because they did find a, a bit of a difference in the percentages. Yes, and, you know, Medicare cares for tens of of millions of patients, or at least pays for the care of tens of millions of patients. So this was a large national cross-sectional study, and it showed that the mortality rate in similar patients was 11.07% among women physicians and 11.49% among male physicians. And readmission rates were 15.02% for women and 15.57% for men. So these are very small differences on the order of 0. 0.4 to 0. 0.5%. But the ladies did better. The ladies did better, and it was statistically significant. That, that's right. That's why the men's bathrooms are always on the left, because women are always <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I have not heard that one. You have not good. heard that one. Oh, welcome Man. to the 21st century, Dr. <laughs> Mulally. Yes, I'm sure that a lot of Relatives of mine are rolling their eyes if they're even listening right now. <laughs> so I, actually, all my, my, my nurses who are all women really like things like that. So anyway, so this did show a difference. And, you know, this is kind of against the, the you know, current cultural zeitgeist, uh, whatever that we're supposed to believe. But apparently men and women are somewhat different. Uh, and this was a, uh, a four-year study. Yeah, they took about a 20% sample of all the Medicare beneficiaries, and they came up with one and a half million hospitalizations. The, so half a percent difference doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're multiplying it over such big numbers, that leads to not only a lot of extra cost, but especially when you're talking about mortality, literally life and death, people do better. So to put this into numbers that can be understood, it means that for every 233 patients treated by these general internists, there would be one more death in those treated by male physicians versus female physicians. And for, blah, for every 182 patients who were treated, there would be one extra readmission among the male physicians. Which, to, to kind of draw that out a little bit more, if you're talking about a hospital-based physician, that would be one or two differences every month or so. Right. So that's, that's really a lot of people, if you have one more patient, live a month that would have died. Well, in the, in the discussion part of this paper, they said that uh, other studies show female physicians are more likely to practice evidence-based medicine and provide more patient-centered care, and that their patients will require fewer emergency department visits after uh, being discharged. And apparently men are less deliberate in their approach to solving complex problems. Fascinating. Maybe we're not as rational as we think we are, Andrew. Well, it, it puts us in a tough position, that's for sure. <laughs> you it know, does. You, you can't argue with the evidence, but I think that's that's one of the things you talk about this a lot, Tom, with the uh, temperaments. Yes. You've got to know your strengths and your weaknesses. And so identifying some of the things that women are stronger in can give an opportunity to us guys. Absolutely. Well, let's go to our medical trivia question of the day. Dealing with women in medicine, in 1968, a little over 50 years ago, only 6% or 1 in 16 of physicians in the United States were women. At least, at least half of medical students are now women. So in what years since 1968 did women constitute 20, 30, and 40% of employed doctors? They're almost at 50% now. After the interview, you'll get to hear the answer. 
But we're going to take a break now on Dr. Doctor and be back with our panel of experts. Welcome back. This time for our guest segment, we are setting a new record on Dr. Doctor. We are interviewing four people at one time with one hand behind our backs. Well, actually not. But today, Andrew and I are truly, in the words of the angel, blessed among women. For we are covering the topic of women in medicine. We have a panel of four here. Starting off in the lineup, leading off, is Madisela Moffat, otherwise known as Marcy. She is a internal medicine practitioner at Phoenix who graduated in Texas from medical school in 1986. And I'm not using years here to be a mean type of guy, but to give you perspective on when these women went through their training. Then we have batting second, Michelle Stanford's pediatrics, uh, graduated from medical school at University of Colorado in 1997 and practices pediatrics in Denver. We then have Jen Johnson, who did a med medicine and pediatrics residency at uh, Kansas uh, Oh, in Kansas City, uh, graduated from medical school in Kansas University in 1999, practices only pediatrics, even though she also trained in medicine. And finally, uh, batting cleanup, Amber Day, graduated from The Ohio State University in 2014, doing pediatric work. Welcome our women in medicine panel to Dr. Doctor. So the, the first question I have, and uh, it's the type of question I would ask and no one in their right mind would research to answer, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. So in 1849, Elizabeth Blackwell became the first female physician to graduate from medical school in the United States. There are a lot more women physicians now than there were 170 years ago. Can any of you describe some of the changes that you're aware of that have occurred in the United States in that time in terms of women in medicine? Um, well, this is Jen Johnson. I am certainly no uh, medical historian, um, but when I was in med school, I actually did take uh, an elective on the history of medicine at the University of Kansas. Ooh. And uh, <laughs> it was really an awesome course, um, but one of the things uh, the professor did was give us a little history about the buildings on the uh -huh. campus and what they had been used for in the past. And uh, he also talked to us about the word resident and where that comes from, and, and that comes from a time uh, when residents actually lived at the hospital. Um, and so there were dormitories right next to the hospital where those residents would live for the duration of their training. Um, well, it was by definition a, a male-dominated field, and so the dormitory for the residents was all male. Um, and so when there did start to become some uh, female students in the in the class and, and then on into residency, they had to put them up somewhere, but they, they couldn't house them in the resident dorm. So the female residents for many years uh, were housed with the nursing students oh, uh, in, the, in the nursing dorm. And, and of course the male nurses lived with the doctors, right? <laughs> I suppose if there were any. There probably weren't. If no. there were any. Yeah. So, um, but I just was struck, I remember as a medical student, um, just understanding that sacrifice that the women before me had really gone through um, because, you know, they, if they were married, you know, there was, there was just no place for their husband. Um, they were forced to live with people that they really didn't share any um, collegial bond with when it came to the practice of um, their art and their profession um, and how isolating that would have been. Um, so I just, even at that moment, really had a gratitude for the women who had come before me. See, that's that's incredible. I My mother is a, a family doc. My, my dad is too. And I know one of the things that she always shared with me going through training was frequently being mistaken for a nurse. Oh, correct. And uh, comments like, when when is the real doctor going to come in and things <laughs> of that nature, which, you know, you bear with grace, but it definitely wore on her. I I'm wondering, you set the stage really well with some of the challenges as women started going to medical school more. I wondered if you guys could go through individually and maybe tell us some of the stories that you guys experienced as you guys were becoming physicians. Since I'm the oldest, um, <laughs> I mean, this is Maricela. Um, yeah, um, so I was entered medicine at a time where the doors were beginning to become open. And in fact, in the class of 200 students at UT, there were 50% women that year. 
So, um, so in 1982? 82. When you started. Uh, when I started. And so, so this was unique because this was, um, they were opening the doors. I had in the Department of Medicine two, in the entire department, and there were over 200 attendings in that department in medicine, two were women. So those were the only role models, and both were unmarried. Ah. Had this was their life was medicine, and and so there were really no role models for us going through, in how how can you actually um, do this? And in fact, my husband is a physician as well, so he was two years ahead of me in training, and so and we got pregnant right away. So we had our first child when, um, as medical students, and then our second, I was an intern, and he was a third-year uh, medicine resident, and that was incredibly hard. Um, and I'll maybe backtrack to the child that I had as a medical student. The accommodation, because she was actually due finals week. Oh, no. The accommodation that they told me they would give me bec- uh, was that I could repeat the year. <gasps> Wow. Not that I could delay my finals, that I could repeat. They would hold a spot for me so I could, uh, so I would repeat the and, year. And pay again? Oh, yeah. It was, there, there was not a lot of mercy. Um, and in fact, I was asked if I was going to have an abortion. I mean, just a number of things. So it was oh just. Oh, my goodness. Guys, I will say it was a very different time. A very wow. different time. Who was time. asking you that? Other students or students professors? Students and, and, and faculty. Both. This was This was not um, something that they wanted to see. And um, so no, none of the other women students were got pregnant. Um, there Mary? were in in the class of two hundred over the four years, eight of us had children. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And did the, the other ones experience the same kind of difficulties you did? You know, I don't know if they were asked those types of questions, but um, I I certainly do. I mean, I'm going to say that you are just appalled when you would when you would be asked something like that. And you're thinking in your head, I was excited. <laughs> yes. Well, this no, I was thing. I was surprised. Yeah, surprised too. <laughs> <laughs> Although you know it's kind of funny because this was like it was um, this was early in NFP guys too. So I will say that that was the other struggle for me, and that there were no support for NFP. I remembered doing our pre. Cana um, during medical school, and there was a little table in the back of the room that had some brochures, and I went and picked them up, and it was couple to couple league, yep. and um, and I wrote away for the thermometer, and yes. and and I had all the reading materials, and of course, as a I'm, I read it, studied it, and so here I am doing ridiculously, you know, you don't, I mean, it was nobody really there to explain that you actually need to take your temperature at the same time every day, <laughs> but I was getting up, like, you know, you'd study till 3 a.m. Sure. and then get up at, you know, a different time every, you know, so it was just craziness. So yeah, we um, we conceived very early. So so we got married December the 27th, and our first was born October the 29th. Oh, so so do do the that's, math. That's do pretty, the math. That's ten months. Yeah. <laughs> Human gestation is actually ten months. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on. <laughs> Thank that you, Marcy. So, so, Michelle Stanford, what kind of things did you experience? You know, you you started thirteen or eleven years after Marcy. So I would say I had a very different experience. There, my class was fifty percent women. So probably for that time, classes continued to be. And at University of Colorado, had a reputation for having what we would call non-traditional students. So there were actually a lot of older students. I think the oldest person in my class was forty-five. Actually, wow. a number of people married with kids, mm-hmm. and a number of people had kids throughout medical school. And I remember women bringing kids to class and nursing and having the baby in the back of the school. And so I really didn't feel, I mean, I didn't have children. I got married at the end of medical school, but I really didn't feel it to be um, any sort of trouble. I'm, you know, so I felt like it was very much accepted. Jen, you were two years later. Um, I, I would say I had similar experience to Michelle. Um, not Half the class women? Oh, yeah, probably, at least. In fact, by the way, I think last year, the year before, uh, the majority of graduates were women from medical school over men, like 51 or 52 percent. So I don't know the exact stats of my class, but certainly uh, it was probably around 50-50. Several people that had um, children both in um, medical school and in residency. I'd say um, I did have a particular staff member um, who, when I was a resident, I had uh, I had planned everything out meticulously. So I, I would say that about having a child in residency was there a lot of meticulous planning um, <laughs> to make that work. <laughs> Details and, uh, not provided. <laughs> and um, 
and I did receive a phone call from my uh, program director um, the, at, toward the end of my first rotation that I was off on medical leave, essentially, mm-hmm. right, sure. from attorney leave. Um, and he was wondering um, where I was going to be on Monday. And I said, what are you talking about? I, I'm taking right the eight weeks off that I had planned and everything. And he said, well, no, actually, I'm, I'm redoing the calculations, and I don't see that you have that time. Um, and you need to be um, you need to be in the clinic on Monday. Um, and if you're not, no big deal. Um, we can probably, uh, you can make up the time, but I am going to have to stop your paycheck. Um, and at the time, um, I was the sole breadwinner for um, my oh husband my and I. My goodness. husband had recently d- lost his job. How many weeks were you after um, delivery? Four weeks. <gasps> so my child was four weeks. My my oldest daughter was four weeks old. And so I did have a panic attack and uh, <laughs> called my mother. She, she drove up and said, I'll just take care of the baby. You know, you do whatever you have to do. <sighs> But actually, this is this was the grace, right? This is the, all in all challenges. The grace is provided, uh, and I wasn't Catholic then, by the way. So the Lord oh. advanced me a lot of grace by many, <laughs> by many, many years, um, by many years. Um, but there was a female um, staff member who kind of had some influence, a uh, faculty member in the peds department. And she came to me, she found me in the bathroom crying, actually, <laughs> because he also insisted that I come to lecture like the next day. And, <clears throat> and I came to lecture and she found me in the bathroom crying and, uh, and she had heard what I had, the ultimatum I had been given. And uh, she said, well, Jennifer, don't you remember? You're doing research with me next month. And I said, what? I'm doing research with you next month. It was really dense. And, <laughs> and, and, and she said, uh, no, no. The um, So she was actually working on a telemedicine project with a local school district and providing telemedicine. I mean, and this is in the early 2000s, before telemedicine is even anything. But they had gotten a grant um, to do some telehealth with some school nurses in the area. And so she said, I think if you can come and uh, spend some time uh, giving advice to the nurse who call in um, I think we can I, I need a research assistant this month so um, I got Instead credit of clinic uh-huh. oh. I got credit for a research month that month a, a, a month by the way that I did not need credit for in order to graduate so oh. so it turns out that my program director had miscalculated um, but it just, but it, it, it actually worked out quite well. Um, it actually got me back into a routine of getting out of bed, of getting dressed in time. I was struggling postpartum. And so I, I also look back and I recognize that, that that challenge, that suffering actually was a way to prepare me to come back at the eight week mark, because that's how long I had off. So, wow. you know, looking back and seeing, seeing that as a grace, but. Amber, so y- you came in 15 years after Jen. Mm-hmm. Yes. Anything and different? I would say that, um, again, my, my class was at Ohio State was about 50% or more females. And so the road had really been paved for us a lot. And probably one of the biggest differences is that we did have a lot more um, mentors who were women in medicine. Um, and I was also fortunate to be a part of the CMA. So I saw, um, I uh, came in with lots of um female Catholic mentors. Um, I would say a couple things. First of all, um, I was really blessed during residency. So we had our first um, at the end of residency. So I was able to use four weeks of vacation and they said, you can, now they let you just delay your residency graduation um, for maternity leave and they will give you three months. But I was so close to the end and we had gotten jobs and my husband was set to start in the middle of August. So we needed to move. And so, um, they said, okay. Um, they, they rearranged my schedule. So I was able to, um, just use four weeks of vacation and then go back to an elective that was working in a primary care clinic off of my attending schedule. So I saw maybe three or four patients in the morning. Um, 
and then didn't even have to pump and I just was able to go <laughs> right home and feed the baby and then I pr did practice board questions in the afternoon mm -hmm. as I was nursing which was really nice that my program that is true multitasking yeah <laughs> well, well how, how many board questions actually got completed I'm not really sure um but so so that was a blessing that they were able to work with me. It helped that I had completed all of my requirements already, so I was able to, mm -hmm. to take sort of easy elective time, and it was great to prepare me for primary care. So was having a newborn. Um, uh, I would also say that the other challenge going through training for me as a woman has been what was already mentioned as far as um, being confused for a nurse. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember one time in particular during residency, a patient complaining to the team that the doctor hadn't come in oh, all day no. long. And I had been in the room probably six or seven times updating them. And I always used... Um, Dr. Day? Yeah, I always said Dr. Day because I knew that that was something if I used my first name or even Dr. Amber. So I even <laughs> said Dr. Day and they still didn't think that that well, that's a good place for a break. We'll be right back with more here on Dr. Doctor. And now we're back with our Women in Medicine panelists from this recording done in Nashville, Tennessee. That was a great introduction to our listeners about each of our panelists today. Let's ask some, some other questions such as, you know, what has society, what have patients gained by the fact that we now have more women in medicine than we used to have? That's an interesting question. Um, I think that um, maybe where I want to go with it is that even if we look at just even our own experience of the women sitting around this table, of just as more women have entered the profession, that it has become kinder and gentler. Uh, we certainly have our- You mean men and women are different? <laughs> oh, yes, we are. Oh, um, and, yes, we are. <laughs> and, and I'm going to say, and you know this also just in, in, the, in the subspecialties of medicine where it has been, there are less women entering, and those are still ortho and surgery. But as those, I mean, I'm going to say we have trailblazers that are women that are brave enough to try to break those ceilings and get in there. Um, those, so eventually the changes will happen. But I think that um, if you look at, um, when I went through, guys, there wasn't even a maternity leave policy wow. when when I was in training in fact when I was a chief resident in my as a resident I wrote the 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 <laughs> yes I personally wrote that policy and you'd think this is the University of Texas that these types of things would have been in place and but they were not um, and so it's uh, but maybe to answer the question with regards to society I mean um, it is it has been studied it's in the literature that women do do communicate yes. better with their patients, that yes. they connect better, patients feel that they've been heard. And, and no offense, because I'm gonna tell you, my husband, it's a six week wait to get in to see him. So there are men that can do this, um, but women tend to do it a little bit more naturally. Now, the first thing people think of often with women in medicine is how do you balance life? But I wanna ask a separate question. What is different in your professional work in medicine for you as a woman today compared to a man who's a physician. So um, I know that you guys have mentioned this before on the show, and it's I've heard this several times that men's brains are like a waffle, and they can really compartmentalize things, and yes. women's brains are like spaghetti. Thank you and for listening. Just, oh, <laughs> and they're just, high five. <laughs> they're just thinking of of everything all at once, um, or or tabs in a computer where um, men have one or two tabs open, and women have ten, and just keep going back and forth. Um, and so I think that that's my biggest challenge, is that especially with... Um, with a family at home, it, trying to sort of compartmentalize, not in a bad way, but in a way that I can really focus on my patients and my job and do that well. Sometimes it's a challenge because during the day I'm thinking of things at home that need to be done or, oh my goodness, I need to tell the nanny this or that. or um, I, My brain just gets occupied when I should be focusing on patients, so I have to take some time to sort of um, stop and remember what I'm doing. Um, and then on the flip side, sometimes at home, you can get bogged down by work a little bit too. Well, and especially too professionally, I mean, you're, you're talking about a lot of the balancing issues that are so challenging for ladies in the profession. Are there challenges that you guys face professionally as well on a, a regular basis compared to men? Um, this is Jen. My, uh, a big part of my work now is not just, uh, 
seeing patients, but actually I'm in a leadership role over other physicians. Um, And one of the things that I've noticed is when I compare what I'm reading or uh, what I'm seeing in my male leader colleagues and what I notice in myself is that the way I do it is very different. Mm -hmm. And I I joke that um, I learned how to be a mom at home first and now I'm just the mom of a lot more people yeah. and they're all adults <laughs> and doctors um, but um, we're getting a lot of nods but, and agreement but, from the rest of the panel but in reality uh, what I what I've also learned is that that's that's a great strength um, and it's a nice compliment to the male leaders in our hospital system so that um, you know what I what I love right about Catholic teaching is that there's a balance between male and female and and this kind of maybe goes back to the other question about what do, what do women in medicine bring to medicine? I think even at a organizational or administrative level, to have women leaders in medicine complements um, male gifts and talents uh, in a way that then can really foster the development of um, medical practice in general, right? So that you can bring those balanced male-female forces into the practice of medicine and into building another generation of practitioners. Uh, And then, you know, who can really serve the entire population in a more holistic way. So it's really actually become a part of what I see as my mission in leadership, um, is bringing that sort of maternal or female presence and style to leadership of physicians. Well, and I, I'm just thinking about the the pressure in medicine to move away from the paternalistic approach, even using like the the sex specific paternalistic term. Is there a maternalistic approach? <laughs> I, I wonder if I mean I haven't heard it introduced that way, but being more collaborative. Uh, oh, there is. You okay. know, it is a unique. What would be set. the maternalistic approach? The mom voice, maybe. <laughs> the mom voice or how about the death glare yeah. <laughs> or that's more for the husband than the child well I guess it can go to child children too right <laughs> Michelle you were going to say well, something. I was just going to say in you know certainly in pediatrics you can relate to the mom so much I mean it doesn't mean oh. that a man couldn't but in those postpartum moments in many you know moments that they have you can really relate to them and just kind of under they understand you that you understand you know, what they're going through. Now, Jen was talking about balance, and I've heard pro and con for using the term balance to think about the way we have to approach life. Do you find balance is a useful way to figure out how you juggle the so many aspects of your life as women, physicians, mothers, wives? Miss Michelle, again, I would say that I agree with you. Balance is tough because it may not be each day equal. Sure. What I love about um, being a Catholic physician is that It helps me order my priorities, I think, more than, you know, if you don't have that religious background, because I know that God has given me the gifts for medicine, but that my first priority is to my family. But there are going to be days where I may drop my medical, you know, someone needs to cover for me, my kids have an emergency. But there's another day that I might need to be more reactive to my patients. So that balance difficult yes you do have to have a balance you do have, you do have to prayerfully think about it and i think that's actually another important piece is that you always are praying and i think that um again from the catholic perspective i always know that if i'm doing what god has ha- told me to do my kids will be taken care of so that it won't have an impact on them because you know god is taking care of them as well so what are some of the the life hacks or the practical workarounds that you have figured out with your insane lives of trying to so-called have it all. Can you have it all? And then how, how do you work life practically? I think one thing for my family that is very good for us is to go to daily mass once a week. My husband is a physician as well, and we both have Tuesdays off. It's sort of his oh. admin day. So that is, number one, it's a it's a nice time for us both to do things like go to the bank or things that you can't do um, on the weekends always. Um, but we also go to daily mass with our children every Tuesday. And um, we're blessed that we live in an area where there's four different options of, wow. of times during the day. Yeah, so, so that is one. And um, any you know, frequenting adoration if you can, but just um, 
and doing that with your family, I think, is a way to keep connected with them. So uh, do any of you other ladies want to add anything to that, you know, practical workarounds to deal with the, the many challenges? Um, again, obviously, I, um, I had my children along the way of my medical training, and, um, and it was difficult in those early years. I mean, because and without family, I could not have done it. And um, I trained in Houston, where both of my parents' families were from, even though we had, were raised in Southern California. So this was, it was truly a blessing, because that was back in the day when call was every other or every so, third. So explain what that means to listeners. Oh, every other night meant you were in the hospital. So how many hours in a row were you usually we, awake? We joked it was 24 on, 24 off, but no, you had to actually have handoff, so it was more like 30 on, um, and then you went home and crashed, and then you came back the next, the next, the following day after you had maybe some time to recover. So, and then call every third night meant you were in the hospital every third night. And so with my husband and, I, and we were in the same program, he could be on a rotation where he was on every third and I could be on a rotation that was every other, uh, do the math. And both of you are not gonna be home every sixth night. So we needed family. And so family, we would either ship our children. This, this sounds horrible guys, but I would send my children to be with my parents in California or with Bob's parents in El Paso for about a month for those rotations where it looked like it was going to be impossible to really impose wow. on on my aunts and uncles that were in in Houston. So, I mean, those are but I will say this, I look back on those and and my children just have such fond memories of being with my parents and in our backyard just climbing <laughs> all the trees and and I remember my youngest was into dinosaurs and my mom would clean the chicken bones I mean she boiled the chicken bones and then buried them she, she had to tell me I boiled them they're clean but of course they're in the dirt you know what I mean, I mean just these so my children have such beautiful memories of their grand of their grandparents both on on both sides because they were so much involved in their lives and so um, I mean, I'm going to say it, I, we could not have done it without family certainly I, th I think yeah. a lot of listeners may not appreciate how hard that even is with two people trying to get their call schedules and then most most people can appreciate a, a young child and their sleep patterns or lack thereof I mean that it is incredible and what a blessing to have family yeah. um, so this is Jen I was just gonna answer that question about life hacks and uh, when I finished residency um, having just had my first child I recognized that I wasn't going to be happy um, if I went the direction I originally was planning on going into medicine, which was academic uh, medpeds. Uh, and so instead, I, I found out uh, about a shift work job that I could do for peds. And it was this novel thing called pediatric urgent care. Um, and I went into it um, strictly so that I could um, kind of in a way, what Amber was talking about, compartmentalize a little bit uh, so that when um, I was working, I was working only a shift. And um, and then when I was home, I could be home. And I did that for many years. Um, well, in fact, I, I'm still doing urgent care, um, but in a, a different, oddly enough, an academic <laughs> leadership role, which is, you know, so I, isn't that uh, kind of funny? Um, but also to see how, you know, if you put your priorities in the right order, like Michelle was talking about, God first, your husband, your family, if you've been blessed with them second, and your work third, um, that the Lord will provide for you a way. Um, and so he provided for me a, a type of position that worked well, really well when my kids were little, and then now has allowed for a transition to something else that's working better for my family as my children have gotten older. And I'm still doing pediatrics. So um, I think there are more options nowadays for women to consider different types of practice during the course of their career um, so that they really can um, I, I would say balance is not the word. I would say integrate. Um, to Integration, integrate. great word. I, I have a, a partner who, who's a, a woman, and when I joined the group 20 years ago, uh, she was in the midst of having her four children, and she only saw patients Tuesdays and Thursdays from 5 to 9 p.m. and Saturday mornings from 8 to noon. Now she's seeing patients four days a week for seven hours a day, but for that, as she would call it, season of her life, that's what she did in dermatology. So you can be creative with, with your schedule. 
Tom, can I make one more oh, comment, certainly. which I think we would all agree that we couldn't do it without our spouses. So my husband actually made some significant sacrifices in his career that didn't, he didn't advance his career in order, he's a police officer, in order to not shift his schedule. So, so that he could be home when they got home. And so I think that we would all agree that we both make those sacrifices for the family. I'd like to move to a different tack now, and that is for, you know, um, adolescent, uh, you know, girls, young women listening who are considering a career in medicine, and they're having a hard time deciding between physician, nurse practitioner, physician assistant. I know now nurse practitioners can make over $100,000 a year, a lot earlier than physicians can start to earn money after training. How, how do you advise them with that decision? Because back, uh, you know, especially when, you know, Marcy started training, when I started training, there wasn't really the nurse practitioner PA thing where they were very common. Now it's an option. I think one of the biggest things would be find someone in each of those um, areas and, and talk to them and shadow them and, and sort of see what their day-to-day life is like, um, see if it's any different between the three or what the differences are. Um, I also think that it may depend a little bit on s- season of life um, and sort of where you're at because I went through medical school when I was unmarried and then I got married and had my first baby at the end of residency so I was sort of done when I was in this season of life um but I wonder if that might if I might have made a different choice had I just had I been starting off at this point in my life when I do have young children um because the training for um through medical school and residency is very rigorous and while the coursework for nurse practitioners and PAs is um, still very rigorous. It's, it's different. It's not quite as long. Um, so, so that might be more conducive to someone at a different season. Um, and I think also what your end goal to a certain extent, um, is, is, is important because there are, uh, I work with, um, excellent, uh, nurse practitioners and PAs in my primary care clinic. And so if that is more of something that your end goal is, even though there are nurse practitioners and PAs and other specialties as yeah. well, um, but that is something where they're working alongside and basically doing the same thing that we are. Well, and, and you know, that's a great point. One, one of the other things kind of along that line of giving advice for the future generation, I wondered what what should women considering a career, especially as a doctor, know about, or maybe better yet, something that you guys have learned afterwards that you wish you had known before you chose a career in medicine? Do you guys have any advice in that regard? Well, you know, it's kind of funny because I don't think a lot of students know um, that, oh, there's residency after medical school. Uh, (laughs) How can they not know that? It's amazing to me that um, no clue. And so if you want to be a neurosurgeon, that's going to be nine more years. If you want to go into orthopedics, it's going to be five more years after your four years of medical school. So, I mean, I think that, um, you know, certainly in my own life, it was like my husband um, did the fellowship. And I and I was asked if I was going to do a fellowship at the end of my four years of internal medicine because I did a chief year. And um and I looked at my daughter and I said, she'll be 10 when I finish and wow. I've missed so much of her life. I'm no, I said, it's one fellowship per family. And, and, that's, how, <laughs> and that's how we solve that's that. That's a good one. rule. <laughs> yeah. I mean, truly. So it's like you're, you're, you're I'm gonna say the, the choices, there are just so many. And the one thing maybe I want for the younger generation to when you, before you start on this path is to know how are you gonna pay for this? Because I have medical students right now that are, that I'm, I'm that I'm teaching that are you know, racking up hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, and and if they go into family, they're gonna it's gonna be 20 years for them to pay this off, and so it's just realizing that what what am I really wanting out of this? If it is to serve and to care for people, I can do that in other ways. 
I mean, a part of me, it's like, is it prideful for me to want the MD or the DO degree um, when I can still care for people um, in the way that I want to care for people and maybe be under a physician as a, as a physician assistant or um, as a nurse practitioner? So I think these are things that, um, and truly, I think Amber's advice to actually shadow someone that's doing this and kind of ask those hard questions, I think, is probably the best advice. How do you find someone to shadow? Ah, that's a good one. Um, well, certainly if you're in the Catholic Medical Association, um, <laughs> we are working really hard to develop a mentoring program. And so that might be um, one avenue. At least for finding a physician. But again, I'm going to say uh, this is, um, there are, um, uh, I'm going to say, I know there's the Catholic Nurses Association. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if there are others. Um, and sometimes it's word mm -hmm. of mouth in your local community. I mean, mm -hmm. you'll find out who are the good nurse practitioners, doctors, PAs. And sometimes you just have to ask them. But oftentimes, I know that I'm always kind of humbled when somebody wants to follow me around. So I think most of us are willing to do it, aren't we? Yeah. Jen, you wanted to say something. Um, I think as you were talking about the NPPA physician type of thing, I think I understand what you're asking. You're saying if the, if the end goal is seeing a patient, you know, would maybe one of these alternatives be cheaper, easier, that sort of thing. Um, except for the fact that I think for myself, medicine was always a calling. And um, I think for those of us that take being a physician seriously, it's not to demean uh, the role of an NP or a PA. They're very, very valuable, but they are distinctly different. So if you truly have a calling to medicine, especially if you view it as a vocation, um, and we're talking about a faith-based vocation that you're going to live out the fullness of the gifts that God has given you through medicine. And that's a calling. That's the thing you first have to discern. So our listeners might be thinking, well, how do I know if it's a calling, Jen? Well, I, I think first of all, you just need to be praying, um, dedicating time every day um, to spending time with the Lord and and the variety of tools that are available to us as Catholics is just endless. But setting aside that time, discipline every single day. And you see, if you do that, then um, the hardships that come through medical school and residency and practice, they, um, well, they won't take the toll on you that they will on your colleagues because you will have grounded first in your identity as um, a called person by God, and he will provide the grace needed to fulfill, live into that calling. Um, and so I think that's, again, the, the thing to always remember. Um, maybe you see it as an insurmountable calling. Maybe you're dissuaded from medicine because of many of the things that we talked about. But I also want to encourage people to not shy away from the difficulties because if the Lord's calling you to it, he will always provide for it. And, you know, you're talking about discerning the calling. I think that's exactly it. That's the first place to start. Are you guys familiar with any resources we could recommend to folks trying to discern that call? I think particularly for a woman, especially a Catholic woman, I would recommend a letter to women. It's, it's actually by, John Paul, by John Paul II. It's not necessarily a vocation to medicine, but I think one of the things that for a Catholic woman that is can be a little bit of a turmoil is, you know, working and being a mother, but you really do see it as a calling. And John Paul II talks about the gifts that you have. And... Um, one other thing I would just mention about that for myself, I felt like I was actually a better mom because I, I had my, my work, which I did feel like it was a calling. So some women are just gonna have that sort of same feeling. I actually had a friend in medical school, a residency who finished residency, had her first child and decided to give up medicine because she didn't know that she would love being at home with her children so much. So sometimes you don't know, but that would be one document um, that I would recommend are, are there people. any experiences in your life that kind of solidified for you that you knew you were called to medicine? Hmm. I mean, I, for me, it was from a very young age. I wanted to be a physician, so, and I, I, I just love children, so. So it was er, implanted it was, early. Yes, I don't know about yeah. that. And the same with me. I mean, I, age 13, I remember um, just 
this is what I wanted to do. And, and there weren't any role models out there at all. And in fact, I, this is kind of a negative, but I remember my pastor laughing at me when I said I wanted to be a doc. And it was like, and so that just, ooh, but you know me, but you know me. I mean, it was like, tell me me I can't do something, and then I will. Were you a handful as a child? (laughs) I was a good child. I bet you were. Strong-willed and good. Both. Do Amber, Jen, any ideas and resources or experience you had that confirmed for you that it was your call? Again, like I said before, um, shadowing is is a really great one. Um, I've had lots of students and residents kind of come and spend the day with me and we just, they are hesitant sometimes to pepper me with questions about life and um, and work and I've, I welcome it. So most of um, us who have been through all the training and are now in practice would absolutely um, love to be able to help you. What final ideas do each of you have that you'd like our listeners to know about the subject of women in medicine? Well, maybe Catholic women in medicine, um, my parting word would be um, to be courageous. Courageous. I mean, I I think I would second that if it really is something you love. go for it. We need good Catholic women. We, we, um, and if it's really what you do, I don't feel like it's a job. I really love what I do. So I think finding something like that is wonderful. I would say most of the listeners probably know about St. Gianna, um, but if you don't, read about St. Gianna Beretta Mola, um, who was a um, amazing Catholic um, physician and mother. Um, and she is a role model to me, and I know she's probably a role model um, to all of these other. So Gianna is G I A N N A, and Mola M O L L A. Yes, an Italian pediatrician. In fact, I was just at a conference two months ago with her daughter, oh, no. who's a physician now retired. Yes, incredible. Jen, any parting words for our listeners? Dare I say it? No. And I usually have lots of them, so one, I, nothing to add. Nothing <laughs> to fine. add to what one, everybody else has said here. One more kind of round the table question before we end: Would you tell your daughter to consider a career in medicine? Absolutely. Well, my daughter's 36 and is an attorney, but she tells everybody that she already went to medical school because oh. she was the child I had in med school. Very good, Jan. <laughs> I've just told my daughters I want them uh, to be who uh, God wants them to be. And But would so, you dissuade them from being a physician? I think actually my children have been dissuaded from medicine because they've seen um, the difficulties that I've gone through. Um, so in that way, I guess my life dissuaded them from medicine, <laughs> <laughs> which means I didn't integrate early enough, did I? <laughs> and Amber, two-year-old Greta. Yes, so my husband and I are both physicians, so it's already um, a frequent topic around the dinner table, so I don't think I could say no. Um, I would be very happy to say yes, especially since two-year-old Greta does have um, a surgery doll. (laughs) Wait, 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 wait. What what does this even mean? So a surgery doll is a zip-open doll that has Velcro organs so she can differentiate the liver, the heart, the spleen, the intestine. Oh, my goodness. Yes. That is fun. I learned something in every episode. Many things <laughs> in every episode. Too. I don't think they had that. No, no. No. Surgery no. Doll. No. 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 So, Madisela, Michelle, Jen, Amber, thank you so much for being with us today on this special edition of Dr. Doctor from Nashville, Tennessee, during the 2019 Annual Education Conference of the Catholic Medical Association. We will be back with the answer to the trivia question after this break on Dr. Doctor. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the trivia question. So maybe you've had a chance to think while listening to these uh, fabulous women physicians. So in 1968, only 6% of physicians in the United States were women. And uh, it didn't take long for it to pass the 10% threshold in about 1970. 
But the question is, when did it cross the 20, 30, and 40% threshold? So were you uh, surprised by this curve that you're looking at here on this graph, Andrew? I, I really was. You, it, it was not as linear as, as you'd expect. This is still a relatively new phenomenon looking at the last 20 or 30 years. Right. So it looks like one in five physicians were women by 1991. So it took 23 years to you know, relatively triple the percentage. By 2002, 30% of physicians were women. And then by 2015, 40%. And as of 2018, 42% of practicing physicians were women. But of physicians coming out, it's virtually a dead heat. Yeah, and I, as you've mentioned, now even more people getting into medical school are women than men. So the, the question seems to be answered is, are there going to be probably fewer guy physicians down the road? Uh, probably. In five or ten years' time, we're going to have to do a show on men in medicine. Well, I've, I've actually been thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know if anybody would want to listen to it. That's true. But, You've but heard all our jokes already. We, we, we could. Oh, come on. We, we've got more <laughs> in the well. Uh, so, no, I mean, this is something clearly here, here to stay. But as uh, the women on the panel said, there are still some concerns, still some differences that um, they have to deal with. Uh, often with older patients. I, I think a lot of it is patient-driven because as, as you see the numbers change over these last 30 years, the medical community is up to date with these numbers, but a lot of the patients are not in that habit. So well, there's more to come. Thanks for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on iTunes or Google Play podcasts. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. Well, we will be discussing the economics of health care with... Michael Hicks, a Ball State economist in the news recently on not-for-profit hospitals. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.